Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been? I've been very well, Gary. How have you? I have been quite well. You know, if your health starts to decline again, we can actually, we'll be able to use these weekly how are you to show your slow disintegration. Always the cheer, always the cheering word, eh, Gary? Always the cheering word. I'm sure it would be probably possible to do an analysis of your tone and the words you say and map out how Michael is on any particular week. Would it map the existential angst I have to get from dealing with you? Like Kierkegaard staring into the abyss. The abyss not only stares back at you, but mocks you. Anyway, Gary, happy Pride. Uh, yes, yes, Pride. One of the deadly sins. Oh, yes, yes. If you are the chap who came up to me in a chipper in Navin to tell me that you liked the podcast, and I walked away, it was because I had no idea what you said. It was halfway down the road before I realised it. Also, kudos on being able to recognise me purely by my voice as I order something. Yeah, in fairness, to recognise somebody off a podcast just from the words, two chips and a battered sausage, not bad. Yes, but uh, apologies, I did not mean to be rude. I just have terrible hearing and it was late. So, we will move into uh, move into the actual news as opposed to my social uh, social faux pas, Michael. Obviously, in, a, in international news, Roe v. Wade is gone, which we must talk about. Or at least mention briefly. We must, Michael. We must. There's a, a new opinion poll. New, but nothing new in it. But okay. There's not much movement in it, which is in itself going to be worrying for Finna for Holland Finna Gale. Yeah, because what what movement there is is bad movement. But there was something I wanted to, to touch on, and it relates partially to Dara O'Brien and Carol Nolan and Kathleen Function and all of those people. So I presume the listeners have seen this. Carol Nolan. Asked Dara O'Brien a question in the doll. Yes. It was a pointed question about whether or not there should be caps on immigration or asylum. And it detailed some of the issues that those systems are having and basically made the argument that we're telling all these people that we can take them in, that we can deal with this, but we're failing. We have created a situation where we're inviting people in as refugees and then leaving them to sleep on the floor of a hotel. And the basic point question was, is this sustainable and is this compassionate to actually do these things? And this is a point we made before, Michael, that the government is saying it can do things, particularly with relation to Ukraine, that it does not look like they have the capacity to do. And ultimately, while that may feel good in the short term, in the long term, it doesn't actually advance those people's interests because they will, hearing you, come to Ireland and then realise that actually you don't have the capability to do anything with this. Whereas had you not done that, they may have went somewhere else that was better able to handle them. And Dara O'Brien did not take it well. He, I think, I would have a fair bit of time for Dara O'Brien, Michael. But I think he clearly overstepped the line in his response. He was just short of calling Nolan a racist. There was also mention, I'm not sure if O'Brien mentioned it or if Kathleen Function mentioned it. Sorry, no, O'Brien did mention it first, about a social cohesion and her comments undermining social cohesion. And this was later uh, replicated by the Sinn Féin TD, Kathleen Function, who said that uh, Nolan's comments fed into this hateful right-wing thing and uh, anti-immigrant sentiment, and there had to be a better way to do it, the details of which were not given out. But Michael, if you remember when the Ukrainian thing happened, when it was first starting to happen, and we were talking about what could be done about this, but also what had happened with immigration in Europe and the mistakes they had made that had led to the rise of a lot of the anti-immigrant sentiment. Yes. And how it seemed like some of the policies the Irish government were were talking about would replicate 
some of the, the policies we'd seen in Europe, which had just led to a feeling amongst the population that there was an unfairness in the system and ultimately then to resentment. We know from a leaked cabinet memo that the cabinet itself is concerned about social cohesion as this happens. It really, Karen Nolan is somehow is being portrayed as a hateful, bigoted figure of the family. We know from polling in Europe across different parts, Scandinavian Europe, Mediterranean Europe, we know about polling that was done in the United Kingdom in the context of Brexit and polling that was done in the United States in the context of Donald Trump, where everybody was very quick to talk racism. When you actually break the figures down and you look at the attitudes of people who are voting in a certain way, one of the, the theme that becomes very clear is that the problem becomes exacerbated when, not that people are racist, but when people perceive that there is a breakdown in fairness, that somebody is managing to run the show in a way which is not even-handed and it's not fair. And that produces something which is the, 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 the thing which is the most dangerous thing in a liberal democracy or I think in any state, which is resentment. Resentment is absolutely corrosive of democracies, but of, of obviously in the face, straight away on social cohesion. We have avoided any kind of xenophobic populist political upswing in this country in the generation which is seen as going from being a, essentially a monocultural nation to being the country in the OECD, which is the largest portion of its population born outside of the country. And we have almost zero levels of political success for parties which play on that on, on a xenophobic tune. But if you refuse to talk about the realities and address the realities, and at a time when, very simply, I mean, Karen Owens, it's just true, Gary, where we are struggling and to to house people. And we are, what was it, 700% increase in asylum applications? 700%, but on the last COVID year, I think it was 170 on the last year without COVID. Then we have 35,000 Ukrainians as well. We have, we're going to take people from Poland, when from the, the, through the reception points in Poland, and we're going to bring them over here. Gary... In, in not the, the not very distant future, it won't be a question of putting them on the floors of hotels. Those will be the lucky ones. It'll be in tents in the Curra. They'll be it'll be in caravan parks up and down the east coast. The, we have we have run out. We are not running out. We have run out. You can portray that as a racist position. I portray it as simply the recognition that there's a certain amount of the resource. To me, this I, I'm not making anything any comment at all. On, the, on how we should organise our immigration policies. I'm just simply saying that there's a certain resource, which is housing, and we have none of it. And to, and to tell people that you can come over here and we're going to give you housing, lie to people who are coming from a war seems not to me to be a very generous or compassionate thing to do. I think part of the government's problem here is that a lot of the issues that have arisen can be traced back to government policies. So things like the immigrant or the asylum system breaking apart, which it seems to be doing pretty spectacularly right now, the government has had a decade to fix it, or at least Fine Gael has, and they have chosen not to do so. They've done dramatically nothing about it. I mean, they really have. People have been, we have been talking about this for years. They have done absolutely nothing substantially to rectify or to change that system. And now it is actually, it's about just a splinter apart. It's, I think their problem with direct provision actually is, 
it's very obvious how it should be changed, and it would actually be pretty easy to do. The problem is that the NGOs would go ballistic, so they don't do it. But it's not that they don't know how to do it, they have chosen not to do it. And you look across housing, and you look across issue after issue that the government has had impact on, and they are the limiting factors now. So it's almost like, Michael, a competently governed state, which has a prudent uh, level of spending and debt and you know allows things to be carried out, allows property to be built, allows things to operate properly. It's almost like a state like that has a higher capacity to absorb things like this. And because we haven't done those things, our own capacity is limited. It is almost like that. <laughs> almost like actions have consequences. And you don't get to turn around after 10 years of ignoring things and say, well, we can do everything because it's clear that no, you can't. But I, th- I think they are correct. I think there is a threat to social cohesion. I think the problem is it's largely being caused by them and their policies. And the problem now is that if no one mentions it, if the media doesn't cover it, if politicians don't say it, it won't stop it, but it'll give them time. But it's exactly what we saw in countries like Sweden. The media wouldn't cover it. The government wouldn't touch it. Politicians wouldn't talk about it. If you mentioned it, you were called racist. And that stuff works for a while. But then what starts happening is you start to see the rise of figures who will give voice to it and don't terribly care if you call them a racist. And they will take the, the basic realities and they will, in fact, bring them on and they will, in, shall we say, enrich them and dramatize them. And they will move from being what is a, perhaps a, a limited but true story to create something which is far bigger and far more mythic and far more damaging and dangerous. And you get to the point when you keep telling people, ordinary people, and because, of course, it's increasing, it'll always be people who are lowered on the economic pecking order who are incompetent. Shall we say, I don't like that phrase, in competition with people, but we're going to be more directly impacted or feel more impacted by this. And you're going to say, you, you can only keep telling them you're, you are, or you're, you're, you can't say that that would be racist. Or if you say that you are a racist, you can only tell them that for so long because at a certain point they'll say, no, this is true. This is happening. This has happened to me. And I am not a racist. And I resent you calling me a racist. You can fuck off. I am not a racist. And I don't, I'm not going to listen to you anymore because you're lying to me. Yeah, I mean, because that feeds into a sense that there is an unfairness, that you are not allowed to say what you've experienced or what you think, or that people will attack you for it. And that leads to resentment and that leads to all the negative things. And this is nearly step for step what we saw in Europe, particularly in Sweden. And the government seems dedicated to replicating it, even though it has already happened and they should be able to look at it and figure out what to avoid. But they're so weak, so objectively pitiful, that they can't even do that, because doing that would require them to say and do things that might annoy people. Annoy the NGOs. It would massively annoy the NGOs. But even if they did that, and took that hit, knowing that they have stopped significant problems from occurring down the line, they won't do it. Even when it's clearly in everyone's interest, including their own because they're just too weak to do it. They don't have the confidence in themselves, at this point, nearly come forward with any policy. Also, Gary, it seems to me that increasingly these these look and sound like people who have actually drunk the Kool-Aid. Which is quite amusing, particularly with the ones who've been around for about 10 years, because you can just go, well, Leo, you said this uh, about eight years ago? No, you never, ever quote Leo back to Leo, because Leo represents such a 
what I think you like would call a target-rich environment, that it's just not fair. Leo has had not just divergent or different opinions and stuff, but hard-line, passionately expressed different opinions and stuff. And very often, really well-expressed arguments on this stuff that it's just embarrassing. When you say, but Leo, didn't you say... And in the words of Bertie Hearn, and I always go back to it, that was then, this is now. And you know what, Michael? I don't like the general direction Leo has gone in. No. And the same way I don't like the general direction the Fine Gael has gone in. But here's the thing. If it worked, I could at least say, well, look, this is political. It works. You need to get back into power. But lads, you're not even breaking 20%. Fianna Fáil isn't even breaking 15 So it's not working. And it's not been working for a long time, but you seem wedded to it. Now, I would suspect that in the party headquarters, they've convinced themselves that you know, things like Sinn Féin rising to this level, they're due to structural causes. It was, in fact, inevitable, Michael. Not due to a decade of piss-per showing from people who have repeatedly (laughs) lied to the electorate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very definitely nothing to do with us. No, God, no. I mean, you know, when we ran on the 2011 manifesto, a fine document, and then decided, well, we wouldn't do any of that, and we'd blame Labour for it, and then we ran again and again and again, and every time implemented as little as possible to the extent that it kind of seems like we don't really want to be in government at all, but, you know, we're here and making a change is difficult. No one could look at that and go, God, if only there was someone else. If only somebody would do something about this. But, hey-ho. I mean, you kind of reach a point where you're like, some of the things they're talking about would be terrible. But at least they're things. It would be something. So, there was a, a shooting in Oslo. Yes, there was. The last time I checked, there were two people dead and 21 injured. Police, so far, sounds like they haven't determined a motive exactly. But they're, what they've been saying to papers and media is that they believe this was a, a act of Islamic terrorism. Which meant, I was quite surprised, Michael, to see Panty Bliss tweet out that these deaths were the direct result of the moral panic being stoked against the LGBTQI plus community by right-wing forces and currently making its way into mainstream media here using invented fears about the trans community in, in particular. And then they, yeah, very helpfully, li- linked to the definition of... Uh, Stochastic terrorism, which is the public demonization of a person or of a person or group, resulting in the incitement of a violent act. And also link to the Guardian story, which contains the subheadline of Oslo deputy chief says act as is uh, an act of Islamist terror, which is slightly confusing for the simple bear like myself reading this story. Also, a direct result. Now, Gary, in the word of the sociological, or shall we say, the, the word of news, if more banally, to be able to say that one thing is direct result, that's fairly strong claim. We were talking before about uh, Michael D. Higgins and the 50-odd dead churchgoers in Nigeria, and how he just kind of really wanted to talk about climate change, and they were either in the way or a bridge to getting there. And this has exactly the same feeling. There is an ongoing argument in Ireland which Panty Bliss wants to comment on and believes should not be happening, and therefore is going to speak very harshly on it. And much like a vulture seeing a dying man, something happened that was useful. The problem, Michael, is... People like Pantyplus tend to put themselves on the moral high ground, but the operationalization of several dead people and quite a lot of injuries in a mass shooting is pretty low. 
Some might say, Michael, that it's morally repugnant to take those debts and use them to advance your own cause, even where it seems that there's no link. And I think it is, in a, in a, in a broader sense, to advance the cause. But really, I, th- I think what the, this specific tweet is saying is, shut up, which is really what the, that part that show those people who are prominently involved on that side of this particular discourse on this particular subject for debate which should not be a subject for vigorous debate i think with the words of Roderick O'Gorman, their principal approach to it is to say shut up stop stop talking enough shush because which is, this is a direct result of people blah 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 threats, which is say stop talking about it or else this will happen and that is a very common theme this kind of moral or emotional blackmail from one particular side of that in this argument, which is to say, if you don't stop talking, all these terrible things will happen. It's also, it's a remarkable capacity to have insight into the mind and the heart of this man in Norway. That's a remarkable feat. I mean, Queen Elizabeth famously, back in 1590s, did not have a window to see into the heart of men's souls. But um, this particular Dublin, Dublin publican has that capacity to see into men's hearts across the waves, a thousand miles away in snowy Norway. Well, Norway's not snowy, probably in June. But you know, you take my point. It's it's a, it's a remarkable act of sympathetic, I was about to say sympathetic imagination, but that would be wrong. That would be imputing a less than real quality to this opinion. And of course, that would not be what I would want to do a, a capacity for distant mind reading basically gary that's what we're seeing here is a capacity for distant mind reading at least when people say things like well if you don't do this or you continue these debates uh, trans people will commit suicide there's no particular person there it's just this will happen in some sense this is different in that it's these particular people were caused because of this when you should know that even if the police had not come out and said that we believe this is an act of um, of Islamic terrorism, you still wouldn't know enough about it to comment on it. Oh, no. It's a direct result, Gary. And you are being willfully blind, willfully ignoring the reality. This is a direct result of people saying things that I don't like about the transition. Quoth, well-known Dublin publican. Particularly this currently making its way into mainstream media here using invented fears about the trans community. I just feel if you're going to say that, let's say, Stella O'Malley talking on radio is eventually going to lead to a process of stochastic uh, terrorism to a mass shooting or something of this nature being recurred in Ireland, I just feel it should be incumbent upon you to explain the steps that get you to that endpoint. Like, what happens between those things or are you just full of shit? You also get the transcript of these various discussions and point with your finger to me to the part of those discussions on the transcript where they deny the humanity of these people. They denied the humanity, Gary. They denied their right to exist. And I'm struggling to find it. So I'm looking, I, would, I would appreciate some help on that also. It just It's an escalation of an already existing debate tactic, which was in itself kind of ghoulish and inexcusable. And, to be perfectly blunt, not backed by anything real. Whereas this is just a sort of, it kind of looks like Panty Bliss looked around, saw some corpses, and was like, well, I can just tie them to this cor- to this uh, cross immediately. And very definitely, it will be a cross, not a crescent moon, that it will be tied to. It's a grotesque, nasty uh, manipulation, but it's what it's also 
in that whole thing, the Kantian notion that the basic test of morality should always be whether or not you're using or treating human beings as a means to an end or as an end in themselves. And this very much has that feeling of people being used as a means to an end. Speaking of um, how you should deal with people and, and the morality of it, the Roe v. Wade decision comes in. Well, I mean, we say Roe v. Wade, but it's actually broader than that. It, it also removed a later case which had reformulated Roe and, in fact, largely replaced Roe and changed the burden that the states had to show. But as no one knows the details of that case, everyone just says Roe v. Wade, which is, to be fair, from a practical point of view, close enough to not matter. It falls... And my immediate reaction, Michael, was this is going to be spectacular on social media. I mean, there was a real sense of, you know, get out the get out the popcorn. Oh, yeah. And then I kind of thought to myself, I have been involved in many kind of political and non-political campaigns. And in the ones I have lost, there has been a variety of responses from the people who won. Now, 100% of the time, in absolutely every case... Anything we lost to the progressives, they would not take it well. They would still be angry at you for fighting them, and they would go out of their way to be as nasty about it as possible. You, th- when, when that happens to you, you just kind of think, well, this is kind of low and unnecessary. You've won. Be happy about it. Yeah, I do, you don't want to pay with too broad a brush, but there is a sense they're not good winners and they're not good losers. Well, I would note the difference. Like when you, I've lost things to just the general left or to socialists. They tend to take things a bit better. There's something about the progressives particularly that their losses and their wins are just not dealt with normally. And to be perfectly blunt, I think it's because most of the progressives are... And you want to talk about painting with a broad brush here, Michael? I would just say mentally not in the best place. Not all of them. There are lots of quite progressive people who aren't. But particularly the activists are, are all over the shop. It's like uh, going back to the to the transgender issue. Most of the transgender people I've met have been perfectly pleasant. Not all of them, because transgender people are people, and a certain amount of people are just bastards. So, you know, pretty natural. Transgender activists, on the other hand, have been some of the worst people I have ever met. And they seem to be worse to people on their side than they are to me. Because they can't put pressure on me, and frankly, I don't care what they think. So they tend to focus most of their anger on their own people. There's also, I think it's sorry, Gary, just there's that going back to whenever it was, when it was a forced enunciated, poor reality to progressive politics, which is the dictum, the personal is politic, is the political. So when you, if you say about the pro- progressive politics, that they take it personally, that's not like a psychological judgment. That's just a description of the nature of the way they experience politics. The personal is political. So they experience success or failure in a very personal way that maybe somebody who's a conservative sees politics as just one of a large number of modes of ex- of, of being within a, uh, a community or society. Would not. It's not to say that there won't be times when personal conservatives will be triumphalist and happy or desperate and despondent, but it isn't tied up in their sense of their identity and their purpose in the same way. Also, I think, isn't it true that being very progressive is also highly correlated with negative emotion? Yeah, it's 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 way up there. Um, but anyway, so with all that in mind, yes, I, was a, I would say I was initially gleeful, not just for the judgment, but for how badly it was going to go on social media. And I thought to myself, you know, be better than they are. And try and react to this with something that they've never showed you, which is grace. But Michael, they are making it really fucking hard. 
the nonsense I have seen coming off progressive uh, Twitter and social media, particularly Irish progressive Twitter and social media. Yes, well, why why does... And this is not just a question of the left and the right, or the, just the left here, guy. I'm still like the level of passion and intensity you can generate in this country, 3,000 miles across the Atlantic, about politics in the United States really puzzles me. Somebody observed last week, I think it was, because there was a double hitter, that Irish journalists are absolutely enthusiastic in their desire, on the other, for example, to hold Boris Johnson to account. And in a way that they don't show any desire to show Irish politicians the same kind of interrogation. And I think that would be good for conservative politicians in the United States. And yet, chasing our own crew, no, not not really interested at all. It's their business. I mean, well, I mean, as, as to why people are interested in American culture, it's because culture spreads through language. And so we and pretty much the entire English-speaking world have absorbed massive amounts of American culture. Massive. I think we don't really get quite how much. Well, no, because even in Ireland and, and even in Ireland and England, you'll hear people say things like America has no culture. America has an incredibly strong culture. It's just so pervasive that it's replaced a lot of the indigenous culture and people don't notice. So um, it's been a combination of your general sort of we're just going to shout, scream and, you know, basically act like a child, which is fine if you're, you know, some people have been very emotionally affected by this. They're going to be a little bit out there. That's, you kind of note that off. The thing that's been really irritating is the amount of stuff that's being said with great confidence, absolutely no understanding of what's happening. And you'll see it on social media, people saying, well, now this is going to happen. And it's not that you disagree with them. It's just that they're wrong, but not based on any opinion, just raw statement of fact. They don't know what's happening both in relation to what the judgment actually means or in relation to what is likely to happen next or why this judgment happened. I saw, Michael, one of the, the directors of, um, I think it was Human Rights Watch, and he came out and he said, this is an exact quote, and Human Rights Watch is a very large NGO, and this is one of the directors, if you don't have the right to control what happens to your own body, if the state can force you to do things with your body that you don't want to do, do you have any rights at all? Michael, it might shock you, but that's what laws do. All laws, presumably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have, you have the obvious ones like drug use, uh, assisted suicide, things of that nature where there's a direct, you can do this or you can't do this. But actually, a staggering amount of laws directly control your body. My favourite example of a law that does that, Michael, are laws against jaywalking. I feel if you have become one of the directors of a human rights charity at this level, you should probably have some fucking idea what you're talking about. Like, maybe some of it. Just just a little bit, Michael. You should understand what a law is and what they do, because ultimately most laws are going to control and restrain what you can do with your body and will be backed by the threat of state-sponsored violence if you do not comply with them. But no, people, how do you get to that level and not understand this? Insignificant numbers of people are reacting to this decision by confidently stating that if we are not on the way to it, we have perhaps we're already in some sense there. We being, I don't know who this we is, this we is sort of we as a human race or something, or that bit of the we which is in the United States. Are we are in, is it Gilead? Is that the name of the state? 
in that dystopia where somehow this is going to lead into The Handmaid's Tale, which I've seen them arrive at things with their bonnets and so on. I read the book a long time ago. I didn't think the book was bad, but it's a dystopia, you know, that's all. It's not a piece of prophecy. It's not the... Or maybe it is. I, how this is going to introduce The Handmaid's Tale genuinely, but there are, I have seen very serious people confidently state that that is now where the United States is. Also, an amazing amount of people who seem to think that they should talk about this at length do not understand how the Supreme Court functions or what the Constitution does or the place of the legislature. Or the federal nature of the United States. No, it just seems to be an an all-round confusion. Also, I would point out at this point that taking America as a whole and notwithstanding where particular uh, states stood at the time, America had the most liberal, and I would say pretty extreme, uh, abortion laws in the Western world. I mean, we had things like uh, Emmanuel Macron came out and spoke against removing uh, Roe v. Wade. France's abortion limits are substantially below what they were in America. Likely substantially what they will uh, below what they will remain in America, even in a lot of the red states. The Fran- 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 French laws are quite restrictive. And what people didn't seem to get or didn't seem to want to get was... That the constitutional guarantee that Roe versus Wade created was an absolute one. And to the point that you got to the, then it became a, a legitimate point of discussion in American politics, whether or not a politician was pro or anti partial birth abortion. Now, whatever your position on this thing, within the vast majority of the European jurisdictions, the notion that you could have a debate on well, whether or not partial birth abortion, which meant that, that the abortion could go ahead up to the point that uh, of crowning in and half up to half of the nose was present, or before that it was okay. Nowhere in Europe would that be legal. Um, but that was what was guaranteed as free access to abortion by Roe v. Wade. But uh, none of this is about the law, Gary. And none of this is about the court. None. It's all we are now. These are sacred issues. These are sacred beliefs on both sides. And this is one of the absolutely core totemic issues of the culture wars. And nobody is talking to each other, Gary. Nobody is having a conversation. Nobody is debating this. People are only speaking in parallel, and they are mostly speaking out of emotion and fear and passion and hatred and love. But they're not speaking in some kind of organised or scholastic, theoretical, academic discourse. Just on, on what you said there, the um, where you're talking about it being unlimited right, in the latter case, it moved to an, an undue burden standard. And on partial birth abortions, they were banned by the Supreme Court in uh, 2007, I think. I'm not exactly sure of the, the date. Roe Ro had created that right. Well, until they, until they, until they, until they were removed, Roe had created, and and it was when it was litigated that Roe had created that right. Two thousand and seven is an example, Gary, of something which was ignored, which was as, as I think you adverted to it at the beginning of this. Was, you have Roe versus Wade in seventy three, but you have a whole series of decisions afterwards that, in some way, impact, limit, clarify, or change the content of Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was not a static thing. But Roe v. Wade became, it, that it's the easier way to talk about it. It's the shorthand. But it was a constant, well, it didn't change much in the 70s, I think. And 
again, and why we're uh, relitigating all of this, it's worth reminding people or telling people if they didn't know that even when Roe v. Wade was decided, it was widely considered to be a dreadful piece of law by liberal and progressive lawyers. Conservative Christian lawyers, obviously, maybe more so, but widely, widely considered as a trash piece of constitutional decision making. It's been interesting to see the pushback against it in the media and amongst politicians. Very few people focusing on what is constitutionally sound here. A lot of focusing on this will have terrible impacts. And I have long been a proponent of the idea that uh, in relation to terrible impacts, Michael, courts should not give a shit. If the Constitution is clear on something, it should be found that way. It is not the job of the court to legislate from the bench. It's a terrible idea, and the more you do it, the worse things will become. So there have been a number of um, decisions that have been made on pretty shaky ground that the court could now look at, and they have given wide-ranging rights that could now be taken away by the court. And that is not the fault of the court. That is the fault of the court that originally brought it in, but then also of politicians for not either seeking to amend the Constitution to ensure those rights were clearly enumerated, or for legislating something about those rights in the time available to them. <laughs> Did you see um, Thomas's list of other decisions he would like to review? I did, and I couldn't help but wonder if this wasn't Justice Thomas's idea of a very good joke, just to annoy people that he really doesn't like. I would note that no other justice has signed on to it. So this is purely the views of, of Thomas. But um, for those who haven't read the... Um, Orberfell was included. Orberfell. Now, Orberfell is the case that recognised a, um, a constitutional right to gay marriage. You know what? If you want to do that, go ahead and good luck. But lad, read the decision, the, the majority decision. It is the waffliest piece of fanciful language that you... I mean... That this was written by people who are supposed to be the finest legal minds of the United States, and you're reading it, and you're waiting for the law, you know? The law. Something hard with edges and definitions, because this is constitutional court making a decision of this great magnitude. And it's just fairy dust, Gary. It's just scattering fairy dust on it, or wuffle dust, to quote the late Kenneth Williams. Lots of wuffle dust everywhere. Really a very odd piece of... But it's their business. It's their court. It's their constitution. Other than Oberfeld, there was what? The contraceptive thing? Yeah, contraceptive thing. Um, there's a third case, which I cannot recall at the minute. But Oberfeld, it was never as as um, as bad as Roe. But you can make an argument that it falls into the same space. And a lot of it is very fluffy, sort of, we must recognise this right. And the thing that... Actually, Oberfell is probably a great example of it, because here's the thing. If Oberfell is bad law and does not constitutionally hold up, it should fall. But it also should have never been decided in the first place. That's assuming, Michael, that it isn't solid. But if it isn't solid, passing it, treating it as if it is, and then putting it in a place where it can be removed by a later court is more damaging than just not finding it all and letting the individual states debate the issue and come to a position on it. And that is one of the dangers with these kind of things. Too often across the United States and across the world, significant changes in social policy have been decided not by legislatures or by voters, but by courts. And whatever one might feel about the outcomes that we have seen in referenda in Ireland in the last number of years, say the issue of marriage, I think that in Ireland we did it the right way. 
We didn't leave it to the courts. It wasn't a decision that was handed down and snuck in the back door. It wasn't even brought in by a progressive parliament. It, it, it was a vote that went to the people, and the people got to decide, and they made their they made a decision, and they, they expressed themselves pretty clearly. And I think if you're going to do large-scale social change legislation, that's the way you should do it. And I think that's the way we did it, and I think it was the right way to do it. Because it doesn't, you, you can't, you can have, you can disagree with the, the outcomes, or you can agree with it, but at least you know that this is the will of the people. And it's not being sneaked in the back door by some kind of coterie of uh, progressive types. The overfall, uh, just to remind people, was a 5-4 decision. A single vote determined whether or not gay marriage became constitutionally protected in America. And a single vote now can take it away. Whereas if it had been done, if it had been built up on a state-by-state level, that would be basically impossible. Now, you could argue that the politics of it are even worse than abortion, and it would never be done. The problem here is that that might be true from a human rights perspective. From a legal perspective, bad law should fall. So we will see. And the interesting thing is when you read the dissent on the Oberfell case, Michael, Roberts uh, wrote it. He, well, not the entire thing, but a lot of it was um, on the misuse of due process and the expansion of rights that were not uh, explicitly enumerated within the Constitution. Not enumerated rights. And also those issues that are held, all unless explicitly dealt with in the American Constitution as being given to the federal government, are reserved to the states. So, yeah. This court is a different one than the court that brought it in. Of course, someone would need to bring a case and the court would need to find it. And if that were to happen, it would not be good for the Republican Party because the political uh, pushback would be extreme, um, not to mention the actual negative effects you'd have on what are you know, happily married families at this point and unhappily married families. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I have, I have a, a, a notion that uh, there was a lot, there's a lot of talk, a lot of hoo-ha noise on the internet in the United States, saying that this is going to be a fantastic way of getting the, the most unmotivated voters to motivate themselves to come out and vote in the midterms in November this year. Um, we'll see. And I'm un- under-convinced by that. I do think that if they were to change Oberfell and change the laws, that that would be a, that would be a far more widely unpopular thing. No, I, I think they will... The leak of this decision, I think, in many ways, diffused the anger. Because although you're seeing it on social media and on the media itself, people claiming that, well, you're going to have to delete your um, your menstrual cycle apps, that these things are going to happen, these things are going to happen. Because it was leaked previously, and people had to explain, well, this is actually what's going to happen, this is what it does, this is what it doesn't do. It doesn't make it illegal to get an abortion in America. It just means the states can individually decide... Some states are going to stay as they are. Some are going to go as extreme as possible in order to demonstrate solidarity. And some of the red states are going to ban it nearly entirely. I suspect most aren't, that they will cut it down to somewhere more in line with Europe. If you look at the the historic polling on this, even within the Republican Party, the num- the numbers that you can conjure up, even in conservative states, for a total ban on abortion are not there complete the kind of ban that we had under the under the eighth amendment i don't see that um there may be an attempt in certain places like the very some of the very conservative southern states and southern western states 
But from what I've seen of the numbers anyway, I don't think, even within the Republican Party, a complete ban is very unlikely. You're much more likely to get the kinds of results that would bring you to the much the same level that you see in France or in Germany, where they're banging on drums and bang and hitting saucepans together uh, in their shock and horror, the awful, terrible thing that the Americans have done. It has been interesting to see the national politicians come out against this and say this is a terribly regressive step for women and will leave them all the poorer when you then look at what the abortion regime is in their country and sort of say, well, if you wanted the American system, why haven't you pushed for it? And I think there's a little bit of, we are just saying the right things, but politically doing this in our country will be deeply unpopular because we don't want an American-style system. But of course, this is a terrible thing, even though it just means they're on roughly the same level as we are. I've also found it a little bit remarkable that all of them seem to be so confident in this particular instance of talking about women. Well, I have I have really enjoyed seeing some of the progressives rediscover what a woman is. Yeah. I uh, say so we've got about two weeks before that runs away again. Bad word, that excluding word. It's a very excluding word, Gary. But I suppose the, the end point here is do not rely on a court to give you whatever you want, because it can be taken away. And while the Supreme Court has been arguably one of the primary drivers of liberalisation of America over the last 50 or so years, all of that can be taken away. Anyway, so that is, uh, that is the Roe v. Wade situation. It will go back to the States. And, uh, you know, Michael, as we were told in the um, during the abortion referendum here, the Irish Times said the Constitution is no place for uh, anything to do with abortion. And all of the pro-choice groups said that we should give it back to the people. And that's what this has done. It's given it back to the people. No, no. You see, Gary, you're making two fundamental errors there. One, that was then, and this is now. Yeah, I think you should take that into account. And the second one, that was for us, not for them. So, you know, I think you... I mean, that sounds in some way dishonest, Michael. It might sound that way, Gary, but I think you're just misunderstanding. I think maybe willfully misunderstanding it, because the Irish Times... Well, all hail the Irish Times. That's all we need to say on that. So I suppose we will we'll close by looking at these um, these election polls. And the major figure in them, these are from the Red Sea Sunday Business Post. The major figure is Sinn Féin at 36%. No change. No change. Fine Gael 19 minus 1. Fianna Fáil 14 minus 1. People for Profit Solidarity 4 plus 1. Social Democrats 4, no change. Green Party 4 minus 1. Labour Party 3, no change. Ain 2, 3 plus 1. And independence, another 12 plus 1. And as Michael said, no change is kind of the summary of this. But if you are Fine Gael and Fine Fáil, you do not want no change. Well, actually, they're both down a percentage, but you don't want no change in Sinn Féin when Sinn Féin are on, in this poll, 36%. You can't. I think the problem here for Fine Gael and Fine Fáil is obviously in Irish systems, the better you can do on the first round, the more of an advantage you have. And if Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil split this vote between them, and they're both on sub-20, I mean Fianna Fáil on sub-15, and Sinn Féin is coming in 35 to 40%, they're just going to kick them around the place. If Sinn Féin could hit 40, then I would say absolutely. That, that's where they are territory-wise. There is a... Within our system, our system is, is fairly proportional, but there is a bonus. This is not a... Not a, it's, this is not a planned or thing. It's just the way it has worked out. There is a bonus to normally for the part, the largest party. What makes or amplifies the nature of that bonus is the gap between the first party and the, the second party. So 
say Fianna Fáil were to collapse down to 10% and all of those votes were to migrate to Fine Gael, well then, the, while the, the total vote for, the, you might say, the interpart for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil might may, remain stable, but the gap gets smaller, then the bonus gets smaller. But if they, you have a situation where Fine Gael, what, 19%, so there's a 17, 17% gap between, then you, if they on, they're on 36, 37%, they are going to get a savage bonus in seats. And this time round, they will be running, we imagine, they will be running the number, the requisite number of candidates to take advantage of the, the, the kind of first preferences they get. If, you know, as we, we keep saying on these things, Gary, or like, these polls are interesting and they must be very, very worrying for everybody except Sinn Féin. And ain't too, I suppose, ain't too. I mean, considering where they're coming from, 3% pretty good result for them but otherwise pretty we are still not anywhere really near that moment where people are really seriously thinking about an election you're not two or three months out from a general election at which point you start stopping talking about trends and start taking the actual numbers a bit more seriously but right now Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil combined are on 33 Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil combined are on 3% less than Sinn Féin. That's a remarkable number, Gary. So, I mean, Michael, you, you'd have to take Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and Labour together to match Sinn Féin in this poll. That's incredible. Now, nothing to but I would say this particular poll is going to be a lot more the poll of choice for the Social Democrats at 4%, whereas in the last poll, uh, they were on zero, <laughs> which I didn't enjoy at all. Uh, just say that we've given a choice between zero percent and four percent. I think you take four percent most of the day. Uh, for everybody else, they'll they'll say it doesn't matter. You know, poll is only a poll. Uh, as someone who has worked with a party and seen that party poll at zero percent, you care. You care so fucking much. Also, it's interesting just because of two two polls which have produced substantially different numbers on different things. Again, no Ivana bounce. Labour, no change. 3%. Not to be... Uh, to be slightly more serious about Labour and Ivana Bacic, who exactly that was inclined to vote Labour uh, or wasn't inclined to vote Labour already would do so because of Ivana Bacic? I mean, I can see Labour voters liking Ivana Bacic. But Labour voters presumably already liked Labour. Doesn't really make any difference, does it? Unless you want to like secure your vote, in which case, yeah, maybe she is good. But that's a sort of, we're not trying to win, we're trying to avoid dying strategy. It's, it's, it's not an appointment that's about breaking out of where you are. It's about, we're in the trenches now and we're going to stay here. We're going to hold this territory as long as we can. And maybe the Americans will come along and save us. But right now, just this is our plan is to survive. Next Sunday will be July. I don't know if that's slightly depressing that it's already July and the evenings are best. But we shall be back on that Sunday. But until then, stay safe. All the best.